once the troops penetrated uh, East Mosul proper, the city itself, that was an inflection point in that um, they quickly saw just how brutal this fight was going to be. So within a few days of the beginning of the offensive on the west side, it was clear that every neighborhood that was moved through now was going to be, if not leveled, then really beaten up. And, and, and they were. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the MWI podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, I'm joined by James Verini. He is an award-winning journalist who has reported from all over the world, including from Iraq, where he spent a lot of time accompanying Iraqi security forces during the brutal fight to retake Mosul from ISIS. That's the subject of his brand new book called They Will Have to Die Now, Mosul and the Fall of the Caliphate. In this episode, you'll hear him talk about his experiences reporting on some of the most violent urban conflict the world has seen in decades. He also offers some really important context about Mosul, its people, and its history that is crucial to both understanding that conflict and thinking about the city's recovery and its future. Before we hear from James, a couple notes. First, we have some new intro music. We've sort of outgrown the music we've used since our very first episodes of both this podcast and our other podcast, The Spear. We have a couple new and exciting podcasts we plan to launch over the coming months, so we're revisiting the music we use in each of them. We might sort of experiment, so if we decide it isn't quite the right fit, we might change it up again. But for now, hopefully you like it, and music aside, we'll keep working hard to provide great conversations about modern war. One thing that won't change is our disclaimer. What you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, enjoy the episode. James Verini, thanks so much for making some time and joining us on this episode of the MWI podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about your uh, brand new book. Uh, it's called They Will Have to Die Now. It's about uh, Mosul, right? And and kind of the end of uh, ISIS's uh, caliphate or so-called caliphate. Uh, can you kind of, first of all, I guess, kind of talk about how you came to write this book? Right. So the full title is uh, They Will Have to Die Now, now Mosul and the Fall of the Caliphate. Um, and the and the Battle of Mosul, as you point out, is the centerpiece of the book. Um, it was a very long battle, nine months, I think, in total. And it was the culmination of the war against ISIS in Iraq. Um, and, and in certain ways, as I say, the culmination of what used to be known as the war on terror. Um, I came to write it because in 2016... Um, I suggested to my editors at National Geographic that I go to Iraq um, to learn about and write about life in the wake of the Islamic State. In 2000, early 2016, the war against the Islamic State in, um, in Iraq had, had finally turned, and the Iraqi troops and the international coalition supporting them were uh, finally doing well and making progress. They'd pushed uh, ISIS out of uh, Ramadi and out of Tikrit, and we're soon to push them out of uh, Fallujah. Um, and so I wanted to go and, and talk to Iraqis who'd been living in the caliphate uh, to learn about what life had been like. So I did that. Uh, in, in July of 2016, I went on assignment for National Geographic um, and was in, in Baghdad and uh, Ramadi and Tikrit and in the north in Sinjar. Um, 
when I arrived, uh, the troops had the Iraqi troops had just won in Fallujah, so I was able to go there um, and um, did a lot of reporting. Was there for about a month, and while I was there, it was very clear that the battle for Mosul was going to begin eminently. Um, everyone knew that the battle for Mosul was going to be sort of the final test for the caliphate, in, at least in Iraq, if not in Syria, and that if Mosul fell, if and when Mosul fell, um, that that would essentially mean the end of the caliphate in Iraq. Everything, the entire war against the Islamic State um, in Iraq, which had been going on now for um, two years or more, um, it, everyone knew it, was, it had to culminate in, in Mosul. Mosul was the caliphate's, ISIS's, largest holding by far, many times larger than their um, capital in Syria and Raqqa. Um, you know, when is I that was, why, sorry, I, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but yeah. is that why um, you said everybody knew this, it was sort of a conventional wisdom that it would be the, f the, the last battle. Was it purely, um, was it purely a function of the city's size compared to Fallujah or Ramadi or Raqqa? Uh, it or was, was there was, was there a, something else? Is there something else about Mosul that made it? There were, uh, this there, were there were a number of factors, um, a lot of which you know are probably sort of tacit that none of the uh, generals or the government was talking about publicly. There was the fact of Mosul's size. Clearly, it was going to be the biggest and nastiest fight. Mosul is, depending on who you talk to, either the second or the third third, third largest city in Iraq at the time something between a million and two million inhabitants before uh, it became part of the caliphate. Um, uh, it, it's in northern Iraq, and it's near the Syrian border. So um, it, in a way, uh, depending on, on how the, the commanders were organizing their fight against ISIS, which wasn't always clear, um, it would make sense to, to push the Islamic State uh, north and towards the Syrian border. Um, the, every, it was clear that Mosul was going to be the biggest and the nastiest fight. It was also um, getting them out of, of Mosul would be the sort of the most momentous um, uh, victory for the Iraqi troops and the, and the coalition in Iraq. I think they also, um, the coalition and, and perhaps the Iraqi military itself also realized that they could not begin with Mosul. They simply were not capable of it. Um, it took a long time for the Iraqi military and paramilitary forces to get into the kind of fighting shape, gain the experience that they would need to take Mosul. So they'd had, um, they'd had a hell of a time taking Ramadi. It take, it had, Ramadi had been sort of split for uh, a good year and a half, I believe, before the Iraqi forces finally took Ramadi and they performed really badly for a long time in Ramadi. Um, uh, they, they took to Crete, but only with the help of, uh, only with the help of Al-Quds and Iranian forces. Um, they ended up taking Fallujah in the summer of 2016 when I was there, the Iraqi troops that is um, in a short matter of, uh, of days uh, or about a month. And people had thought that Fallujah was going to be a really nasty fight. The Iraqis ended up taking it in about a month. When they took Fallujah, it was clear that they had what it 
they had what it took to fight in Mosul and take back Mosul, and particularly that ISAF, the, the uh, special forces, the CTS, uh, had what it took and that they, would, they should be leading the fight in Mosul. So I think there were um, um, a number of factors, spoken and unspoken, um, that made it clear that Mosul had to come last. There were smaller battles, smaller urban battles after Mosul, Tal Afar and uh, Huwija, I believe. But yeah, I think from the beginning, um, it was clear, or from near the beginning at least, it was clear that Mosul would have to be built up to, that it couldn't be taken on immediately. Also, uh, geographically, you know, as the Islamic State took so much ground so quickly, um, they, the, the troops couldn't just get to Mosul. They had to basically, they had to shrink the caliphate. They had to push back the lines of the caliphate in northwestern Iraq towards Mosul before they could get to it. And you said that the fact that there was, um, that Mosul would be the last big fight of this uh, conflict was sort of, it seemed like kind of a foregone conclusion. Was victory on the part of the Iraqi government also um, a foregone conclusion? Would, was your sense that, because you spent a lot of time with Iraqi soldiers and, and, and senior officers, uh, was was did it feel inevitable uh, that Mosul would be recaptured from ISIS? That's a great question. Um, I was I I started reporting on the war as I say in July of 2016. By which point there was a feeling of an of inevitability about the capture of Mosul. I think for a few reasons. One because so many Iraqis and Iraqi soldiers had already died in this fight. Um, that they were not going to stop short of taking Mosul. The government was not going to, the military was not going to. By that point, the Iraqi population had also turned against uh, the Islamic State um, dramatically, including many Sunni Iraqis. I think there was a sense of inevitability and necessity among Iraqi civilians that that Mosul had to be taken. I think certainly among the international coalition and the Americans in particular, the idea that Mosul could be left in the hands of the caliphate was, was simply inconceivable. Um, you know, it's, it's impossible for us to know what exactly Baghdadi and the other higher-ups in, in the Islamic State and the caliphate were thinking um, about how they were going to hold Mosul and the rest of the caliphate, or even whether they wanted to, um, but what even if they, but even if their thoughts had been along the lines of say a Hamas or a Hezbollah, you know, it, which is to say an insurgency that grows that grows into um, an actual political movement and a party that ends up becoming a permanent part of the political landscape. Perhaps in the beginning, there was a chance that the um, Islamic State could amount to something like that. Um, but 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 within um, you know within uh, a year, and certainly by the time of the Spiker massacre, uh, the killing of of um, over a thousand uh, Air Force cadets, it was it was clear that the. That the, the Islamic State could not be, you know, a part of the political landscape at all, like in the way that, you know, Sadr had become part of the permanent political landscape, um, it, that it just, that it was untenable. Um, so 
I, I don't know if inevitability was the word to describe the collective psychology of the Iraqi military and populace on the eve of the battle for Mosul, but certainly necessity was. I think every, it was clear to everyone that they were going to push the Islamic State out of Mosul, whatever it took, uh, however many people needed to die and however much of the city needed to be destroyed. And, and, and sadly, that is exa- exactly what it did take. You know, West Mosul um, was was all but entirely destroyed. Um, you know, it was reminiscent of of the line about the battle for Way in Vietnam in 1968. Mosul had to be destroyed in order to be saved. Sure, sure. The so you spent uh, obviously a great deal more time with um, Iraqi government forces than you did. Uh, on the other side with ISIS fighters, but I wonder if you can just by, uh, based on your experience uh, there and the people that you did talk to, if I wonder if you can speculate a little bit about what you thought the mindset was on the other side of the, um, of, I guess, of the, of the front lines. If, if, you know, did, do you think ISIS fighters also felt that this battle was inevitable and that they felt as, that they were as likely to lose it as government forces felt that they were to win it? Um, God, I wish I knew more about their mindsets. You know, it, the Islamic State was obviously a very large and diverse. Is it's not? It's not. It's still around. The Islamic State and the Caliphate both very large and diverse movements with people from many dozens of countries, um, people of all different levels of of devotion to Islam and knowledge of Islam. Um, you know, you had you had everyone from people. Um, who could recite the Quran uh, to the to people who didn't even speak Arabic and couldn't read the Quran in Arabic? You had, I think, all manner of, of motivations among the fighters who came to join the Islamic State and the Caliphate, or at least the people who came to join and ended up fighting. Um, you know, I think the psychology ranged from the hardcore millenarian. Um, apocalyptic to the utopian to the lack of a better idea um, there there are people who went to the caliphate and joined the Islamic State thinking that um, it really had uh, created a place uh, that would that would exist in perpetuity um, and people would go live by uh, Islamic ideals and Islamic rules at least as they interpreted them I think you you had others um, of a much more millenarian and apocalyptic mindset who were um, who were immersed in the um, Sunni uh, apocalyptic literature, both contemporary and modern apocalyptic literature. um, A lot of it written since two thousand three in the wake of the American invasion, and and a lot of it, but a lot of it also medieval apocalyptic literature commentaries on the Quran. Um, you had these people who did not think of uh, the caliphate existing on earth in perpetuity. They believed that the caliphate um, was, a, uh, was a step to the apocalypse. It was a step to Armageddon, um, that they were priming the ground for the apocalypse. Um, it could be that Baghdadi thought that way. We'll probably never know. He was not public about his his views. Um, um, in terms of 
in terms of what the jihadis believed might happen on the eve of the battle for Mosul, uh, I think that would, not to evade the answer, but I, I think that would probably greatly depend on the individual psychology of the jihadi. Um, you know, um, uh, clearly a lot of these people were, were uh, capable of great lengths of self-delusion and of general delusion. Um, they have, a lot of them probably overestimated their, their chances against the Iraqi forces. Um, uh, they were probably being fed a lot of propaganda, internal propaganda about their chances against the forces. From the, from the propaganda literature of the Islamic State and the Caliphate that I saw, um, there was certainly a lot of discussion of um, uh, religious or theological inevitability. You know, our, our triumph, our victory is uh, inevitable, is, is all but foretold. It's guaranteed because we are in the right. We are fighting for God. Um, and how can we lose? You know, that was the tenor of a lot of the propaganda that I saw after the fact. Um, I think if you were a jihadi fighting within Iraq and fighting within Mosul, uh, you saw the, and if you were being lucid and, and honest, how, God knows how many of them were, were being that, um, you saw the writing on the wall. Uh, you, you knew that you're, your time was coming. It might take a long time and you might be able to destroy and kill a lot in the meantime. Um, but uh, it was obvious what was going to happen. If it wasn't inevitable, then it was um, uh, probable to the point of inevitability. We have at MWI, we have uh, something called the Urban Warfare Project, where we do a lot of kind of uh, writing and um, and thinking about the unique challenges that urban environments pr uh, uh, present to military forces operating there. And when I picked up your book, that was what I was most looking forward to is kind of a, a sometimes, you know, street by street, sometimes house by house description of what fighting there was like. And there is a lot of it um, mm. that I think is very good. What I found myself surprised by was how much I actually enjoyed uh, equally, if not more, the what else you did with the book. I expected it to be a book about the Battle of Mosul, uh, and it was, but it also contextualized it uh, in in really uh, interesting ways. So you, you, you place mo both the city and the fight for it in the context of recent history from, especially from the, uh, the 2003 US-led invasion, uh, in ancient history, uh, in terms of, you know, modern day geopolitics and um, uh, a little bit about oil and the Kurds and all of these different things that you really kind of have to uh, at least contend with if you really want to understand the city and the fight to, to, to wrest control of it back from ISIS. I wonder um, which of those you, um, I guess, which of those pieces of context you found most um, maybe most interesting, but especially most important to really understanding Mosul? Mm. Well, I, you know, I really, I hesitate to use the word luck, but uh, I and everyone else interested in both warfare and history lucked out um, in, in, that this in the fact that this battle took place in Mosul. I, I knew very little of this 
history when I um, when I went to Iraq in 2016 to cover the battle. But Mosul, as you say, is a is a place um, endlessly rich in history, going back uh, many millennia BC. It's one of the oldest cities that we know of in the world, um, and it's it, it's historical apex in, in, in antiquity was uh, in the Assyrian Empire uh, in the in the around the first the turn of the first millennium BC and going up to um, the um, the seventh millennium BC or sorry the the seventh um, century BC um, in terms of in terms of what period of the city's history I found was perhaps most formative or most let's say most useful in thinking about um, the Battle of Mosul in 2016 and 17. Um, I, I know, I, certainly I know that what, what I found to be the most um, powerful and, and, and uh, unforgettable was the ancient stuff, the, um, the rise of Nineveh, um, which is the the ancient city of Nineveh is now encapsulated in modern day Mosul on the east side of the city, but the rise of Nineveh as um, as a world capital in its day under the Assyrians or the Neo Assyrians, it was uh, archaeologists and historians speculate the most populous um, city in the world and the largest, um, and it and it's and it was the center of an empire. Um, that stretched, you know, from the Mediterranean uh, to North Africa to uh, to the Caucasus. Um, that uh, that fact, the fact that Mosul had um, uh, not that long before, if we're talking in terms of human history and 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 Earth history, been the lar- the largest and most powerful city. In the world, um, I found you know that was just kind of um, that was just endlessly fascinating to me, and the 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 idea that I finally came to learn or accept after I'd been there for a few months, the idea that in walking in any part of Mosul, but particularly in East Mosul, I was walking over layer upon layer upon layer of history, uh, ancient history to medieval history uh, to modern history. Um, but it, you know, in, um, in the, uh, middle ages and the early modern period and the 20th century, Mosul became something of a backwater. It, re- it returned to prominence in the early 20th century when oil was tapped there. Um, and Mosul was, um, became a big issue in the, in the league of nations, the fate of Mosul, because everyone wanted it because of the oil. Uh, the Brits, the French, the um, eventually the Americans, uh, the Turks. But other than that, Mosul had sort of had, Mosul after uh, the ancient period um, or a- after the early medieval period. Um, uh, after Saladin, basically, it kind of sl- after the um, the um, the Abbasids, it, it's it's kind of slid into obscurity. Um, and except for this sort of blip in the early 20th century, it remained comparatively obscure compared to, say, Aleppo or Baghdad um, uh, or Damascus in the in the Middle East, uh, in the Levant, and in and in the you know uh, global view, it remained 
obscure for for many centuries until it became suddenly in 2016 the focus of the world and not just of uh, the focus of the levant and of iraq but the focus of the world and the way in which that can happen the way in which a, a city of of such ancient importance but more but more recent obscurity can suddenly return to the world's focus and concern i have, i also found that um uh, very moving um, and and endlessly interesting. Was this something that, in your experience, um, you know, spending a lot of time again alongside um, members of the Iraqi government forces uh, and including the CTS, was it something that they were aware of, or or frankly cared much about? Well, um, uh, I don't. So, as I say in the book, in the beginning of the book. Um, um, I spent a lot of time talking about history with Iraqi soldiers and the, the older Iraqi soldiers, the soldiers who had been educated during the Saddam era, they knew a great deal about the history of Mosul and Iraq, and Iraq generally. Saddam Hussein um, uh, revamped the Iraqi education system and undertook uh, literacy drives for the adult population in Iraq. And, and in the 19... Um, in the 1970s and 80s, Iraq became one of the most literate societies uh, in the region and in the world, at least according to official statistics. Um, and um, and he and Saddam took historical education very seriously um, and made sure that Iraqi school children were versed uh, in in Mesopotamian history uh, and Levantine history. Um, so the older soldiers, um, I knew a great deal of the history of Mosul. I couldn't tell how particularly interested any of them were in it. Um, and in, you know, in, in Nineveh, I think their interests may have been more centered in the south, in, in what had been the Mesopotamian Empire uh, south of Baghdad. But um, the, the, they seem to know a bit less about the Assyrians than the Mesopotamians. The younger, the younger soldiers um, knew less. The younger soldiers who had been educated post-Saddam, and, and this was, you know, uh, a lot of the soldiers, they just, they knew a great deal less because the Iraqi education system um, was, needless to say, a shambles uh, after 2003. Their historical knowledge was mm-hmm. nothing like that of, of, their elders, uh, sadly. So I want to shift a little bit to, um, you do, I think, a good job of capturing uh, the, again, the, the kind of difficulty of fighting in cities. Um, you also do a good job of explaining how different the east side was to the west side and how comparatively quickly the east side was sort of um, dealt with as a, as a series of military problems uh, compared, to, uh, compared to the west side. What about the... Um, what I like about well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say quickly, but but with less destruction. Sure, yeah, sure, because yeah. you know the west side is is the older part, right? With these kind of Byzantine lanes and and closely packed structures and and things that the the east side is just comparatively more sparse. I guess is that correct? Um, the east side is easier to get around. The west side is much more densely packed architecturally and with people. Not not Byzantine in the figurative sense of the word, not the literal sense of the word. Um, 
and uh, the West Side was also the base of, of the Islamic State in Mosul. The, the East Side had always been, or not always, uh, the East Mosul was only really built up since the Ba'athist era, but it, it was the more diverse side of the city, uh, more minority populations, Kurds, Shabaki, um, Christians, it had the university. The West Side was more homogeneously uh, uh, Sunni, um, and um, you had much older architecture there, public architecture and private homes with families who had been there for many, many generations. That was much rarer on the East Side. Okay. And it was done sort of in succession. Um, I mean, there was a, a clear kind of a series of phases of this overall fight. Um, in terms of kind of cadence and rhythm of the fight, Clearly, there's a, a major inflection point when kind of the, the battle is joined, so to speak, uh, on, on the outskirts of East Mosul. Uh, was was that point when, OK, East Mosul is now, you know, air quotes, liberated. Um, now we have to go to West Mosul. Was that another major inflection point? And what what was the perceptions of that uh, amongst the, the people that you were spending your time around? Yes. It, yeah, it absolutely was a major inflection point. Um, I guess there were a series of major inflection points. Uh, the the Kurdish so the the camp the campaign began um, with the Kurds, uh, the Peshmerga securing uh, the villages in the countryside um, outside of East Mosul, and that that took um, a bit longer than people had expected or hoped, but it was pretty rapid. Uh, once the troops penetrated uh, East Mosul proper, the city itself, uh, the CTS and the 9th Division and the 16th Division primarily followed up by the federal police, that was an inflection point in that um, they quickly saw just how brutal this fight was going to be, particularly the CTS. Um, they, they, didn't, they, they couldn't be sure from their intelligence um, the the quality of the fight that uh, that the jihadis were going to put up until they actually uh, reached the city itself in East Mosul, and then it became apparent very quickly that the jihadis were going to were going to put up a, a bitter fight. Um, so that was a major inflection point. The the, um, the 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 battle became very slow at that point, and it became clear that. The CTS, the special forces, were the only unit really capable of carrying it on, uh, along with along with one portion of the 16th Division, the 73rd, within the 16th, I believe. Um, they were of the fi same fighting quality as the special forces, but the 9th Division was not capable of of pushing forward and confronting the jihadis, um, and and nor were the federal police at that point. So it was all up to the special forces and. And one portion of the 16th division. So the so the the campaign, the offensive, necessarily slowed down a lot at that point. Um, and then um, as it progressed over the months, over the course of the fall and winter um, of of 2016 and, and early 2017, they moved through the neighborhoods of East Mosul. It got a lot quicker. Um, and by January of of uh, 2017, they'd secured the east side. Everyone knew um, from the start that the west side was going to be the more bitter fight. That was known from the beginning. Um, 
just how bitter it was going to be, I don't think anyone could have anticipated it until the fighting on the West Side started. The hope initially was that the uh, troops would, would be able to secure um, at least a few bridges or create artificial bridges in order to move from the east side to the west side. Uh, but by the time of by the time the east side was secured, the bridges had been destroyed, and so the Iraqi troops um, had to had to come in from the south, um, and uh, almost immediately, uh, once the fighting had begun on the west side, the level of destruction, um, both from uh, jihadi ordnance and from airstrikes. The level of destruction was an entirely different thing than it had been on the east side. The airstrikes on the east side had been um, prolific, but uh, comparatively pretty surgical. The the airstrikes on the west side were, I, I, I don't use this word lightly, indiscriminate. Um, because it was not just the coalition running the strikes now, but it was uh, the Iraqi Air Force with helicopters. Um, and the um, federal police were now taking a much larger part in the offensive on the west side. And they just simply weren't nearly as well trained, didn't have as good equipment, had much more inaccurate uh, ordnance. So within a few days of the beginning of the offensive on the west side, in February, I think it was, of 2017, it was clear that this that we were at another inflection point, which was one of sort of sheer destruction that every neighborhood that was moved through now was going to be, uh, if not leveled, then, then really beaten up, and, and, and they were. So if we, you know, and I guess just by, because I'm cognizant of, uh, of the time, uh, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit toward kind of the end of the battle and then uh, turn back to your book and, and you use the stories of, of two brothers that you kind of come back to throughout that you had developed relationships with um, and you use them to kind of uh, paint a picture of a very uh, divided city, uh, very complicated city on, on a number of different levels. Uh, given you know what you just talked about, say the the physical destruction of um, a lot of the city and its infrastructure and its structures, uh, and then also just this interesting background of you know of a city where ISIS came in and some people left, some people supported it uh, because they were coerced to, and some people voluntarily did because you know they thought, hey, this is better than the government in Baghdad. Um, given all of that, what do you kind of see for the? for the future of Mosul um, over the, you know, the next five, 10 years or more? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I don't, John, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that, to be perfectly honest. Uh, first of all, I haven't been there in two years. Um, let, let, me, let me tell you how it felt when I left in, in May of 2017. Sure. Um, so when I left in May, in two, uh, May of 2017, a great deal of, of West Mosul was completely leveled, as were many other parts of northwestern Iraq. Other parts were just very, very uh, beaten up. And it was clear that it was going to take many years, many decades, to rebuild. Um, the, the physical destruction um, is one thing. The psychological destruction or damage uh, is another thing. 
now you I, i'm not an uh, an expert in iraq um i know a great deal more than i used to about its history and its politics um um and i'm not an arabic speaker but uh certainly the psychology when i left um and what i've gathered from iraqis whom i've spoke to since um was was parlous and and not encouraging um many sunni iraqis had supported uh ISIS, uh the islamic state um including in mosul many of those same people came to turn against it and to hate it once they found what life in the caliphate was like but nonetheless many of them supported it initially because in part because their belief not entirely wrong was that um or largely right was that the Iraqi government was dominated by Shia nationalists um and that there was uh a neglect of Sunni areas and a a, a lack of respect for for Sunnis generally in the Maliki government um and in regional governments and that and that often was true and um so the many many Sunnis uh Sunni Iraqis saw Islamic state at least in the abstract as a desirable alternative to the Iraqi government and 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 a a bulwark against what appeared to be the rise of Shia nationalism and Shia uh of the Shia sect uh in the Muslim and Arab world generally the rise of Iran um and its proxies uh in Lebanon and elsewhere um by by the, by 2017 by the end of the battle of mosul um even the sunnis who had not supported the islamic state even sunnis who had fought against the islamic state um who always saw it for what it was they were also being blamed by other iraqis uh mainly shia uh for the rise of the islamic state many but not just shia also kurds and others um other minorities they were being the sunni iraqi sunnis were being blamed for this awful regime that had held so much of the country for years um and already uh already before the caliphate was over in iraq there was a campaign um of sometimes obvious but usually more covert uh revenge going on by shia militia uh and uh shia soldiers against um sunnis the, the revenge it, it could range from abduction and murder to um abuse and neglect um and um sunni iraqis generally were being blamed for this movement um i don't get the sense that things have changed much in the last 2 years but i have not been so i cannot say you know myself but the the idea um the prevailing view of of disheartened iraqis and of uh foreigners who lived in iraq and know iraq well as of 2017 when i was last there was that we were seeing yet another cycle in a you know years and decades long um story of sectarian uh attack and retribution um we were seeing yet another iteration of um 
of the um, attacks on Shia Iraqis that Saddam undertook, and then the uh, sectarian wars of the 2000s. Um, the, the view and the expectation was that we were, that this was yet more of this, that we, that we were going to see that the, there was a campaign of revenge being uh, carried out by Iraqi Shias against Sunnis, and that that inevitably was going to lead to yet another backlash that Sunni militias were going to be formed, um, and that more and that another sectarian war was going to break out in Iraq. That doesn't seem to have happened exactly. But then again, the reporting from Iraq uh, in the last since the end of the caliphate has been so uh, threadbare um, that it's impossible to know what's really going on, or at least I've found it to be. Well, James, uh, you know, on that, um, I guess on, on one hand, sort of tragic note, but on another sort of a very um, realistic note, really. And I think that's one of the best things that your book does that that highlights like the, the sort of human tragedies that were, um, and I, I use that like plural, but also, I guess, singular uh, human tragedy generally that, uh, that this, this fight has represented, but what it does, I think, best is um, it puts it in that context. It it treats this as um, uh, an act, um, uh, you know, sort of in a theatrical sense, an act, a very bloody one, certainly, but one act of a much longer play that's been um, sort of evolving uh, for a great deal of time and and is probably not over. So anybody that's interested, I highly recommend uh, the book. It, it gives, you know, it's just fantastic on the ground reporting. It's it's great storytelling um, and 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 is great for anybody that's kind of, a I guess, a, a student of uh, of conflict and the region uh, and and history as well. So thank you very much for taking some time to uh, to talk about it and and good luck with the book. Thanks, John. I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you're enjoying the conversations we feature, please take a second and give it a rating or leave a review. It really, really helps new listeners who have an interest in the topics we cover to find us. Thanks again.